0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We are continuing our series called Resolute. Uh, Tenacious faith for a tumultuous time. These are tumultuous times, uh, but it helps us to know when you take the long view that tumult is not the exception, but the norm. Uh, We actually see this in scripture time and time again. The faith that God gives his people has to be a tenacious faith because so often God gives his people faith in tumultuous times. Last week, we looked at the last two verses of Acts. These two verses describe the house arrest of the Apostle Paul. Paul had a mission to spread the good news of Jesus to the world. But then suddenly he found himself under house arrest, likely chained to a guard, not just for two months, but for two entire years. The Apostle was hindered. But the good news of Jesus, the word of God was not. And so the very last word of the book of Acts, Luke does this on purpose, who wrote Acts, is unhindered or unbound, which is such good news for us today because we feel hindered and we feel bound. But God is not calling a time out during tumultuous times. Maybe last week, if you were li- with us, you were wondering what Paul was thinking about during those two years of house arrest. What were his priorities in ministry? Well, the amazing thing is we kind of know. We kind of know the answer to that question. He had a letter writing ministry uh, to other Christians scattered across the Roman Empire. And Ephesians was just one of these letters. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to read from Ephesians to see what was on Paul's heart during those two tumultuous years of house arrest. Let's start at chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read, you can follow along, and then we'll pray. This is God's word. And you, speaking to the Ephesian church, she saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Come Holy Spirit. We need your empowering presence this very moment. Give me boldness. And give us all open eyes in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past month I've been relearning how to sit, and how to stand. Yes, you heard me right. Apparently, standing and sitting do not come naturally to me. When I sit, I don't really sit. I slouch. And when I stand, which isn't often enough, uh, apparently, my, I make my neck work overtime. I didn't know this. But for every inch your head moves forward, you're adding 10-pound load to your neck and to your spine. My neck and your neck is designed to carry a 10-pound head. But what I've been doing most of my life is asking it to carry a 30-pound, essentially, head. And so I've been intentionally going back to the basics. It's what I've been doing. What I like to do whenever I do this is I like to pick up a book and read about how to sit. And read about how to stand and how to move again. Relearning the very, very basics. To be honest... I've been relearning the basics, not just about my body, but I've been relearning the basics about my soul, about my faith. These crazy times, these insane times have caused me to relearn the basics about God and about my response to God. And this has been in some ways like relearning how to sit. You would think as a pastor, as someone with an advanced degree in theology and scripture, that I would have it down. You would think I would have it down. You would think I would know how to sit. But we all need to constantly relearn the basics about God. It's been said that the fundamental problem in the Christian life is not ignorance so much as it is amnesia. It's a, it's a sort of problem of forgetting. It's a problem of forgetting the basics. Uh, we don't live in light of the basics, the very fundamentals about God and our response to Him. We don't live in light of them. So many of us are signing up for Christianity 401 when we have forgotten Christianity 101. Well, during this pandemic, during this political season, I think we all need to relearn Christianity 101. To have a tenacious faith, we need to drill down to the basics of the faith. We need what we already know to sink deeper into our hearts. Uh, We need what we already know to be renewed in our heart and stoked into flame again. We need to hear the gospel again as if it was the first time we ever heard it in our life what we need is we need a revival and guess what revival often comes if you look at church history on the heels of tumult remember the apostle paul was in house arrest for 2 years chained to a prison guard talk about tumult uh, but he kept on extending the welcome of jesus and the gospel moved forward not in spite of the hardship that he experienced The gospel moved forward, frankly, because of the hardship that he experienced. You see, the gospel is like a wildfire. The harder the winds of adversity blow, it just stokes and spreads the message that gives us life of Jesus. One of the ways that Paul extended the welcome of Jesus creatively during his time of house arrest was through his letter writing ministry. Uh, He wrote the letters to the Colossians. He wrote Philemon. And he wrote our letter, Ephesians, uh, during his two-year house arrest while chained to a guard. This letter would be, I think, kind of equivalent to a Zoom ministry call today. Paul knew that it was better to be in person. Of course he did. He would prefer that. But short of that, he did the best He could do and God used it. And I love this letter that he wrote to the Ephesian Christians. I love it for many reasons. But one of the main reasons, too, is because it starts with a prayer. I think one of the most important prayers that we can pray for those we love and that we can pray for ourselves. Look with me at chapter one, verse 16. Chapter one, verse 16 says, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. And then he sort of spills into this prayer that he has been praying relentlessly for the Ephesian Christians while in jail. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know that you may know really know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe so he goes and basically saying what I am praying for is I'm praying that you would know something that you would know something in your heart Paul is spending his house arrest praying for other Christians who are having a hard time. What is he praying for? That they would know something in their heart. You're having a hard time. I know you're having a hard time. I'm having a hard time. What is a priority of ours in our prayers? Well, for Paul, he models something and he says, we need to know something in our heart. Our hearts have eyes use his language and these eyes can be open or they can be closed and he prays that their hearts eyes would be opened not just their minds not just their heads but their eyes of their hearts there is a head knowledge and there is a heart knowledge and this contrast has been described by others as a difference between a map of the mountains and actually backpacking on that mountain I have a map, and I cherish this map, of the Ray Lakes Loop in the High Sierras. And I could study that map all day, every day. But until I actually backpack the Ray Lake Loop and feel the air on my face, feel the frigid mountain water around my ankles, feel on my shoulder the brush of the trees, observing the wild animals and how they act, My knowledge of the mountain is just a map knowledge. It's a head knowledge. And Paul wants the Ephesians to backpack the high country of God. That's essentially what he's praying for. That they wouldn't settle for the map, but they would actually backpack the high country of God. Today we would call this experience. Paul prays that they would have what the old saints called experiential religion. Now, what is it that he wants them to experience? Well, our passage that we just read answers that question. It answers that question. It's my conviction that our passage is exactly what we need to experience, not just know, these days. Paul's prayer is my prayer for you. Paul's prayer is is my prayer for me, actually. And in a way, Paul's prayer is a prayer for tenacious faith. What is tenacious faith, according to Paul? Well, I was so blessed throughout this past week uh, reading the thoughts of John Stott on this particular passage. If you can get your hands on his his writings that way, I would encourage it. I like how he puts it. He says, this passage is about two things. Pessimism about humanity. Optimism about God. And I would just add one third thing. It is also this passage energetic about God's mission. So let's talk about those three things this morning. First, tenacious faith, if we were to receive it, uh, is realistic about our deepest problem. Take a look again at verses one through three. These verses describe with unflinching honesty humanity's deepest problem. Now notice, Paul says every single human has a problem. Not just some really bad people, everybody. So he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked in verse 1. And then in verse... Let's see it. uh, If you go down a little bit, we also see in verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So he goes, you, and then he adds himself. He says, we, and then he ends verse three by saying, like the rest of mankind. That's everybody. That's everybody. What is everybody's problem? Verse one says it trespasses and sins. Trespassing is going against something Uh, Sin. Uh, The Greek word for sin means missing the mark. And so what Paul is saying is that we all sort of go against and we all sort of miss God's ways, God's best. We, We are sinners and trespassers at heart. And that is the greatest problem. And this sin problem, according to Paul, creates two paradoxical realities in our life. First, a living death. Notice that Paul says in our sins and trespasses, we were dead. We were dead, but we were also walking. It says in which you once walked. Verse two, if you take a look. So we were dead, but we were also walking. Now, I'm happy, actually, that our cultural obsession with zombies has uh, seems to be fading But the zombie obsession made a really important spiritual truth, which is that without Jesus, we are walking. We are walking around living life, but it is a kind of living death. It is a living death because we are biologically moving around. But spiritually, we are disconnected from God who is life. And if we're alienated from the life source, then we are in a way moving around, but without life, a living death. And if we're alienated from the life of God, we also stand condemned, according to verse 3. Now, in our cultural moment, God's wrath seems to be a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, we can't live without it. Without it, we would have no basis to cry out against injustice. Without it, we would have no hope against very real evil. Actually, I agree with John Stott when he says, quote, We need, I think, to be more grateful to God for his wrath and to worship him, that because his righteousness is perfect, he always reacts to evil in the same unchanging, predictable, uncompromising way. Without his moral constancy, We could enjoy no peace. And so yet, on the other hand, God's calm refusal to play games with evil outright ought to make us squirm. If we're honest about our sins and trespasses that Paul just talked about. And that's Paul's point. He says, left to ourselves, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Not kind of okay but alienated from the life of God, rebels against God, and that is a living death. Sin also creates another paradox in our life, what I'll call a false freedom. We may think we're living free, but according to verse 2, if you take a look, we walk not according to freedom, but we walk following the course of this world. And then he unpacks that more. Following in lockstep with the world, which the world was a sort of a catch all word uh, that described external, societal, systemic, generational sin patterns that are kind of baked in externally and that we participate in, um, even if we don't know it. And then he says, essentially, the flesh, which describes internal lusts and the idolatries of our heart. When we take good things and we twist them for our own ego and to our own purposes. And then the devil, the world, the flesh and the devil, which is the prince of the power of the air. So we think we're free, Paul says. We're walking, but we're walking in lockstep. It's a faux freedom. Remember, freedom, true freedom is always connected to created purpose. If we're created to love God and to love others, then we are most free when we are bound to God and when we are bound to others in loving commitment. Instead, if we're honest, uh, we're held captive by our own addictions. We're held captive by our own ego. We're held captive by our own selfishness. And we call it freedom. We settle for a faux freedom. Now, this faux freedom, this false freedom, and this living death that Paul just unpacks in these first three verses, um, is all in the past tense. Because he's writing to Ephesian Christians. He's writing to a church who has been rescued. And, and we too who are reading this, who have been pulled out of this state. Why is Paul spending so much time? Why is he being a downer? Why is he reminding them of what they once were, not what they are today? Well, Paul prays again in verse 18 that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts would be open to the reality of what we once were. That's what Paul wants. Paul wants us to see and deeply experience, even if we're pulled out of it, the severity of what we were rescued from. He wants us to be realistic about our deepest problem. I'll never forget When my dad called me to tell me that uh, he was just diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. I was working in the Olentangy River Road Starbucks. I walked outside. It was a beautiful spring day. And I walked outside to take the call. And in a way, it was the worst possible news that I could hear. And yet, on the other hand, having an accurate diagnosis meant that doctors could start treating the problem with a target specificity. And my dad was given five really quality years because of that targeted specificity. As counselors tell me, facts are friendly, even hard facts. Sin is a serious and severe diagnosis. But if we pretend our problem is anything less, we will not get the medicine we need. And we will not appreciate the medicine that we've received. We are absolutely without recourse to fix the problem that our sin and trespasses create. I'll say that again. We are absolutely Without recourse to fix the problem that our sins and trespasses create, which is a desperate place to be. And it is an offensive message to preach. But a weak diagnosis leads to weak medicine. And we need strong medicine, which takes us to our second point, which takes us to Paul's second point. Paul prays that we would be realistic about our problem, yes, but he also prays that we would be wildly optimistic about God's solution, confident even in God's solution, amazed by God's solution, settled in God's solution, shocked even by God's solution. It comes in verse four, led by two all-important words, but God. But God. But God has a solution. What is God's solution? It's an all expansive salvation. It's an inexhaustible grace, and it is an unearned gift. It's an all expansive salvation. We are dead, so what does God do? He saves us. The word here that Paul uses is salvation save. He saves us. He rescues us. But there's so much to this word salvation than what we often import into it. When Paul uses the word save, we should look in the context to see what he means by that word. And when we do, we see something huge. We see something magnificently huge. Paul frames our salvation as being united to King Jesus what happens to Jesus as our representative is, in fact, true of us. Jesus was raised on the third day, Easter Sunday. We celebrate every year. We celebrate actually every Sunday. If you're a Christian, you should celebrate every single day. Jesus is risen. He is alive. Here's what Paul says. We have been raised with Him. He was not just raised for you. You were somehow raised with Him. It says, good is done, your resurrection. Jesus, as we talked about a few weeks ago, ascended into heaven and was seated at God's right hand, receiving the kingdom. When we believe, we too were ascended into heaven, restored the dignity of Adam and Eve before the fall, who were called to rule this world that God created with wisdom and with love and with righteousness like God does. And here we are restored by being united to God's kingdom rule. It's an amazing privilege. Paul is telling the Ephesians that they are sitting on thrones with Jesus in the heavenly places. That is what it means to be saved. It's as good as done. In other words, Everything Jesus did for, for us, His resurrection, His ascension, and what, what is called His session, when He sits with all authority next to God's, uh, in, at God's right hand, was not only for us, but somehow, Paul says, it's with us. We are united to Jesus, so that His life is our life. We are no longer dead, but we are alive. We are no longer enslaved, but we are enthroned with Jesus. That's the gift of God. It's an all-surpassing salvation. And it's an inexhaustible grace. Why does does God do this? Well, Paul tells us why God does this. If you look down, it says in verse 4, Mercy. So mark this down. Write it down. Circle it if you have a Bible. Here's why God did it. Mercy, which is just simply helping those who can't help themselves, who are in a desperate place, Love, in verse 7, immeasurable grace. If our sin was without measure, then God's grace is more. That's Paul's point. And in case it isn't clear enough, Paul tells us in verse 8 that all of this is a gift. All of it, including the faith itself that lays hold of it. It's a gift so that no one may boast. Verse 9. You boast in things that you contribute to. In the case of our salvation, it's all Jesus. The only thing that we contribute to the equation of salvation is our sin. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. You boast in things you contribute to. Paul's saying there's no boasting. That means there's no contribution. Jesus rescued us. He saved us. Remember, we were dead. A few months ago, I came back from a summer vacation to a car that wouldn't start. I tried to jump my battery with my wife's car, and it worked once, and then the next time it wouldn't start. And then I paid a towing company to come out and they jump-started the car. It worked once, but then it died again. Ultimately, it turned out I needed not just a brand new battery, but I also needed a new terminal connection. I needed new terminal connectors. Those were too corroded even. And that's how true salvation works. We're not like a battery who needs a jump or a jolt from God. Our battery is absolutely dead. And even our connectors, even our connectors are corroded and can't hold the charge. So we need to be rescued. We need a a brand new battery. We need brand new connectors. We need to be connected to Jesus. And that's God's solution. It's the strong medicine. That verses 1 through 3 demand. And what Paul believes in tumultuous times is that we need to see this. We need to see this rescue with the, with the eyes of our hearts. We need to be shocked again. Are you shocked again? We, we need gratitude to start flowing. Is, there, is gratitude starting to flow in you? <laughs> Holy Spirit, make it happen, because this is what Paul's praying. This is what I'm praying What happen with me. What happened with you is that we would indeed be amazed again by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus and all that he has done in our helpless state. Tenacious faith is wildly optimistic about God's solution, even as we're pessimistic about ourselves. And then finally, I'll say this. Verse 10 gives us a picture of tenacious faith that is energetic. It's energized about God and about his mission. It says in verse 10... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now you would think, after Paul is just so God-drenched and so god sighted in his presentation of salvation, you would think then that, that, that Christians just sort of sit back, slouch, like I sit, and, and would simply say, well, that's it. God has it. That's, all, that's all, all I have to do, is just sort of receive that. But Paul uses here some interesting language that I want you to hang on to, he uses creation language to talk about our salvation, verse 10, where his workmanship, it says, and then he doubles that word up with the word created in Christ. Jesus. So that alone, that that word workmanship, which is the Greek word poema, I love to talk about this poema, it's like a masterpiece it's like, it's not just a DIY project that that I would put together, it is actually an artisan um, artifact that God created, and then he says created in Christ Jesus, that alone tells us that salvation is all of God because there's no such thing as a sort of self-creation, things can't just self-create, but If we thought that our salvation is so God sided that it makes us lazy and passive, then this little verse should correct our error. Because God, as I said, doesn't just create a janky DIY project in his salvation when he recreated you in Christ. No, he created a masterpiece. He he is an artisan and we are hope his artisan church. And so, the good works that Paul talks about here, I want us to think about as beautiful, costly, sacrificial, loving things that we are able to do as his artisan church. He has shaped us to be able to do beautiful things for God's kingdom. Um, We have already been rescued and saved, according to Paul's logic. So none of this beautiful work, none of this beautiful stuff that we get to do, how could it be counted towards our salvation? We have already been rescued. We've been reshaped as God's artisan church to do amazing things. To actually sacrifice... Ourselves for the sake of others, to actually put God in His ways ahead of our own desires, like to actually do those costly acts of obedience, those small baby steps of obedience, these beautiful acts of obedience that we are now able to do, not to earn His love, but because precisely we have it. We are His artisan church. In college, my roommate was studying to be a teacher. And one day he came home from class And he uh, shared a new trick that he learned from his uh, teacher. He said, I'm not supposed to tell a student, you have to do this. I'm supposed to tell them, you get to do this. (laughs) And we laughed about this because it sounded like 1984, George L. Orwell, uh, Newspeak, frankly. Uh, You get to do this. Uh, But it actually is a beautiful way of describing what happens to the heart of a believer when the gospel takes hold. We move from guilt, "I have to do this for God," to gratitude, "I get to do this for God. I am His artisan, church." If before I walked in the course of this world, enslaved to my ego, what an amazing freedom! What an amazing freedom to walk fully alive to God into His mission. To step into the beautiful words. The life-giving actions. The costly sacrifices. The small steps of obedience that God has prepared in advance for his artisan church to do. The Christian life is in some ways like a feast where God is to cook. And he, we, we show up and we enjoy. We enjoy the things that God has prepared for us in advance. We enjoy them. We step into them and we count them as our greatest privilege. Hope we are an artisan church crafted by an artisan God to do amazing things. Let's lean into that. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened once again to our deepest problem, but God, to your solution. And would that indeed energize us? We are your creation. We are your artisan church. Would we... Walk in freedom. Would we walk in freedom? Would you open our eyes to what that would look like? And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.